Tonight, I'm very much aware, my brethren, that you probably represent the largest gathering of the priesthood ever to assemble. And as I stand before you and contemplate the weight of my responsibility, I think I have a greater appreciation of the truth of the old adage that when the time comes for delivery, if I might use that phrase, the time for preparation is past. Just 24 years ago, I sat in the choir seats of the assembly hall in the building to the south of us. The setting was a state quarterly conference. The Aaronic priesthood, the bishoprics, were providing the music, and Elder Joseph Fielding Smith and Al Masani had come to reorganize our state presidency. As President Smith stepped to the pulpit and read the names of the new presidency members, I think the other two knew of their calling in advance. I did not. President Smith simply said, if Brother Monson can respond to this assignment, we'd like to hear from him now. <laughs> I made my way from the choir seats to the podium, looked out over that sea of faces, and thought it rather interesting that the hymn that we had just rendered, which I had not heard before nor have I heard it since, was entitled, Have Courage, My Boy, to Say No. I used as my theme that day, have courage, my boy, to say yes, and I have that same desire for courage in my heart tonight. Actually, there's another song that better represents a description of all of you. You know the words, behold a royal army with banner, sword, and shield is going forth to battle on life's great battlefield. Its ranks are filled with soldiers united, bold, and strong, who follow their commander and sing their joyful song. Victory, victory, through him that redeemed us. Victory, victory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The priesthood of God represents a mighty army of righteousness, even a royal army. Our commander, a prophet of the Lord, President Spencer W. Kimball, and in supreme command, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our marching orders are clear. They are concise. They came from the Lord. Matthew recorded them. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. When those early disciples received that command, what did they do? Mark records that they went and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. My brethren, the command to go has not been rescinded. Rather, it has been re-emphasized. Make no mistake about it, you young men of the Aaronic priesthood, this is a glorious time to live. 
We have 28,000 missionaries serving tonight, with other thousands preparing. We have nine new missions ready to come into existence in July, bringing the total to 175. The field is white, ready to harvest. Your opportunity is before you. The blessings of eternity await. What might you do to qualify for these blessings? I would like to suggest that all of us cultivate three virtues that we might be part of that royal army. First, a desire to serve. Second, the patience to prepare. And third, a willingness to labor. Let's consider them individually. Take that first one, a desire to serve. The Lord gave the signal. He said, I, the Lord, requireth the heart and the willing mind. And a Latter-day disciple added to that when he said, Until willingness overflows obligation, men fight as conscripts rather than following the flag as patriots. Duty is never worthily performed until it is performed by one who would gladly do more if only he could. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we do not call ourselves to this work? Isn't it glorious, young men, that your parents don't assign you to your particular mission? You are called of God by prophecy and by revelation. I shall never forget the glorious days serving with President Kimball, Brother Hinckley, and Brother McConkie, and others in the old Missionary Executive Committee when Brother Kimball was chairman. Those missionary assignment days were filled with inspiration and frequently interspersed with appropriate humor. I remember reading to President Kimball what one bishop had written on a missionary recommendation form. He wrote, This young man would like to go where the Lord would have him serve. His mother, however, is very close to him, and she wonders if it might be appropriate if he might be assigned to a mission close to their home in California so that she might visit him regularly (laughs) and telephone him weekly. As I read that to Brother Kimball, I awaited his pronouncement of a designated assignment. I think I noticed a little smile come across his lips (laughs) and a twinkle in his eye As he said without further comment, I feel the Lord would like this young man to serve in the Johannesburg, South Africa mission. (laughs) And that's where he went. Actually, the examples of where a particular call match a particular opportunity are too frequent to mention. This I know your calls are sacred, and divine inspiration attends them. If ye have desires to serve God, behold, ye are called to the work. That second point, the patience to prepare. Actually, your preparation for a mission is not a spur-of-the-moment thing. It began before you could remember. Each class in Sunday school, primary, seminary, Each priesthood assignment had a larger perspective. 
silently, almost imperceptibly, a life was being formed, a career charted, and a man made. Remember that statement? Who touches a boy by the master's plan is shaping the course of a future man. In the audience this evening are quorum advisors. Brethren, do you appreciate your responsibility to the Aaronic priesthood boys? Do you ponder your assignment? Do you pray about it? Do you prepare for it? And do you prepare your boys for their missions? When I was 15, I had the opportunity to serve as president of the teachers' quorum. And we had a wonderful advisor who knew how to deal with boys. He said to me one day, Tom, you like to raise pigeons, don't you? I said, yes. Then he said, how would you like me to give you a pair of purebred Birmingham roller pigeons? This time I answered, yes, sir. You see, the pigeons I had were the common variety, trapped off the roof of the old Grant Elementary School. He said, come on over to the house tomorrow evening and I'll have a pair for you. That next day was the longest day of my life. I was at his house an hour before he came home from work. And as we left his back porch and walked out to the rear of the yard where his loft was, I looked at the most beautiful pigeons I'd ever seen. Harold, my advisor, said, select any male you choose and I'll give you a female which is different than any pigeon in the world. Well, I made my selection. Then he reached up in a corner nest box and handed me a little female pigeon. And as I took her in my hands, I said, what's different about her? He said, note that she only has one eye. And I looked and she only had one eye. A cat had done the damage. And then Harold said, take her home. Keep them in your loft for about two weeks. Then turn them loose and see if they'll return to your place. I followed his instructions implicitly. When I turned the old male out, he strutted around the roof of the coop, then came in and ate. But the female, she was gone in a flash. I telephoned him. Harold, did that one-eyed pigeon come back to your place? Come on over, he said. We'll have a look. I went over to his place, and as we walked out the back door toward the loft, he put his arm around me and said, Tom, you're the president of the teacher's corps. Well, I knew that. And then he said, what are you going to do to get Bob to priesthood meeting? He's never been there. I said, Harold, I'll have him there Sunday. Then he reached up, well, here's that one-eyed pigeon. Handed her to me, keep her in another two weeks and try again. I did it with the same result. Harold, did that one-eyed pigeon come back? Come on over, he said, we'll have a look. And on the way out to the loft, he said, congratulations on having Bob out to priesthood meeting. Now what are you and Bob going to do to get Bill there? I said, we'll have him there Sunday. Well, there's that one-eyed pigeon, he said. <laughs> he handed her to me. Brethren, I don't know how many times that experience was repeated, but I was a grown man before I realized that he had given me the only pigeon in his loft that would come back no matter how many times she was taken away. <laughs> it was his inspired way of having a personal priesthood interview 
with the president of the teachers' quorum every two weeks. <laughs> I owe a lot to that one-eyed pigeon. <laughs> I owe more to that quorum advisor who helped me prepare for assignments which lay ahead. Third, a willingness to labor. Young men, missionary work is hard work. It will strain at your capacity. It will tax your energies. It will require your effort, even your best effort, perhaps a second effort. Remember the words of the poem, stick to your task till it sticks to you. Beginners are many, but enders are few. Honor, power, place, and praise will come in the time of the one who stays. Stick to your task till it sticks to you. Bend at it, sweat at it, smile at it too. For out of the bend and the sweat and the smile will come life's victories after a while. Brethren, in addition to those three virtues, may I mention that the help of God is only a prayer away. During the closing period of World War II, I was ordained an elder just before I turned 18 and left for service in the Navy. At the train depot to see me off were my parents and my girlfriend and a member of our bishopric who handed me this little book entitled The Missionary's Handbook. I laughed at him and said, John, I'm not going on a mission. I'm going in the Navy. He said, take it along. It might come in handy. It did. Three days later, the chief petty officer said, now you sailors will stack all your clothing in this sea bag. If you've got some kind of a hard rectangular object that you could put at the bottom of the bag, your clothing will stack better. I thought, where am I going to find a hard rectangle? Well, the missionary handbook. <laughs> and it went right to the bottom of the sea bag, and there it stayed for 12 grueling weeks of basic training. Finally, it was the night before we were to come home on Christmas leave. Our thoughts were on home. The boy that bunked next to me from Salt Lake City, Leland Merrill, seemed to be in difficulty. He moaned and tossed in his bunk, and I said, Merrill, what's the matter? He said, I'm sick. I'm really sick. I said, well, you'd better get over to sick bay and let the doctor look at you. He said, not on your life, Monson. If I go over there, they'll keep me a week for observation, and I won't get home for Christmas. And he was right. So I told him to kind of be quiet. Two hours later, his pain was more intense and his cries were louder. And then he said, Monson, Monson. I said, yeah. He said, you're an elder, aren't you? I thought, yeah. And then he said, give me a blessing. I said, what? <laughs> give me a blessing. I realized that I had never given a blessing in my life. No one had ever told me how to give a blessing. I'd never seen a blessing given. I turned to my heavenly Father and sent a fervent prayer, God help me. And brethren, the answer came. Get into the bottom of that sea bag. And at two in the morning, I took the gear from that bag and placed it on the deck, took that hard rectangular object called the missionary's handbook into the cubicle by the nightlight, 
And there I read how you bless the sick. And with seventy sailors looking on, I gave Leland Merrill the shakiest blessing I think a man has ever given. But at the conclusion, as I stowed my gear, he was sleeping like a little child. The next morning as we lined up to come home for Christmas, he said, Monson, I'm glad you hold the priesthood. And his gladness was only exceeded by my profound gratitude. Brethren, have a desire to serve. Have the patience to prepare. Have a willingness to labor. And then you and all of us may qualify for membership in that royal army of the Lord and receive the fulfillment of his promise when he said, I will go before your face, and I shall be on your right hand and upon your left hand, and my spirit shall be in your heart, and my holy angels round about you to bear you up. May this be your blessing, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to direct my remarks to the Aaronic Priesthood, particularly what I have to say I think will be applicable to all of us, however. I'd like to start with Alma's testimony to his son. He testified that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. And I plead with you, young Aaronic priesthood bearers and all of us, to determine now in your youth to put your trust in the Lord and by obeying his commandments earn the right to receive the specific blessings he has promised for specific types of living. Those given by in the word of wisdom, for example, when he said that all saints who remember to keep and do these things, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow in their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. This reference to the destroying angel passing by the children of Israel refers to the occasion when to persuade the Egyptians to let Israel go, the Lord smote all the, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. But in his death-dealing mission, 
the destroying angel passed by the homes of those Israelites who had marked their door lintels and side posts with the blood of the, a lamb as directed by the Lord. It appears from the word of wisdom and other scriptures that there are destroying angels who have a work to do among the people of the earth in this last dispensation. The Lord told the prophet Joseph Smith in 1831 that because all flesh was corrupted before him and because the powers of darkness prevailed upon the earth, these angels were waiting the great command to reap down the earth to gather the tares that they might be burned. In 1894, President Woodruff said, God has said the angels of destruction for many years, God has held the angels of destruction for many years, lest they should reap down the wheat with the tares. But I want to tell you now, these angels have left the portals of heaven and they stand over this people and this nation now and are hovering over the earth waiting to pour out the judgments. And from this very day they shall be poured out. Calamities and troubles are increasing in the earth and there is a meaning to these things. Now, my beloved brethren, in view of these re this revealed knowledge and understanding which the Lord has given concerning what is transpiring about us, is it not a glorious thing to have the assurance that if we will clothe ourselves uh, with bodies qualified through observance of the word of wisdom, these destroying angels will pass by as they did the children of Israel? and not slay us? Well, this is one of the blessings to follow observance of the word of wisdom. The promised blessings for obedience to the law of tithing are just as specific as are those for obedience to the word of wisdom. One of them is, has to do with the productivity of the soil. I remember being impressed with this thought many years ago as I listened to the remarks of Elder James E. Talmadge, who was one of our great apostles when I was young. Do you know, said he, that the soil can be sanctified by the tithing of its products? The land can be sanctified. There is a relationship between the elements and forces of nature and the actions of men. This statement is in harmony with the sentiments of President Brigham Young. Talk about these rich valleys, said President Young, why there is not another people on earth that could have come here and lived. We prayed over the land and dedicated it and the water and the air and everything pertaining to them and to the Lord. And the smiles of heaven rested on the land and it became productive. 
Another reward for paying tithing sounds almost like crop insurance. Listen. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the fields, saith the Lord of hosts. President Grant's boundless faith that the Lord would prosper those who were liberal with their means in building the kingdom has had a distinct effect upon me in my life personally. Many years ago, I heard him tell about attending a fast meeting at which the bishop made an appeal for donations. President Grant, though a very young man, had $50 in his pocket, which he intended to deposit in the bank. But he was so impressed by the bishop's appeal that he tendered the whole $50. The bishop took $5 and handed him back the 45 stating that $5 was his full share. President Grant replied, Bishop Woolley, by what right do you rob me of putting the Lord in my debt? Didn't you preach here today that the Lord rewards fourfold? My mother is a widow, and she needs $200. My boy, queried the bishop, do you believe that if I take this other $45, you will get your $200 quicker? Certainly replied President Grant. Here was a demonstration of faith which the bishop himself couldn't withstand. He took the remaining $45. President Grant testified that on his way home that day, fast meeting, back to work, an idea popped into his head, acting upon which he made $218.50. Speaking about this incident years later, he said, Someone will say that it would have happened anyway. I do not think it would have happened. I do not think it would have... I would have got the idea, he said. I am a firm believer that the Lord opens up the windows of heaven when we do our duty financially and pours out upon us blessings of a spiritual nature which are of far greater value than temporal blessings, but I believe he also gives us blessings of a temporal nature. A further reward for paying tithing is a guarantee against being consumed in the burning which is to accompany the second coming of the Savior. In the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord explains that his purpose in tithing in his people is to prepare them against the day of vengeance and burning. And in the 64th section, he says, Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man, 
and verily it is a day of sacrifice and a day for the tithing of, of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. Personally, I've always considered tithing to be the law of inheritance in the land of Zion. For the Lord said when he gave the law that all those who gathered to Zion should observe it or they should not be worthy to abide among the inhabitants of the land. And now the third specific commandment to which I direct your attention is, thou shalt not commit adultery. You will recall, of course, Alma's teaching his son Corianton that unchastity is the most serious offense there is in the sight of God, save murder only. You will remember, too, these words from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, where, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Some years ago, the First Presidency said to the youth of the church, better dead clean than alive unclean. I remember how my father impressed the seriousness of unchastity upon my mind. He and I were standing in the railroad station in Rexburg, Idaho, in the early morning of November the 12th, 1920. We heard the train whistle and knew that in three minutes I would be on my way to Australia to fill a mission. In that short interval, my father said to me, among other things, my son, you are going a long way from home, but your mother and I, your brother and sisters, will be with you constantly in our thoughts and prayers. We shall rejoice with you in your successes, and we shall sorrow with you in your disappointments. When you are released and returned, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. But remember this, my son, we would rather come to this station and take your body off the train in a casket than to have you come home unclean, having lost your virtue. I pondered this statement at the time. I did not then have the full understanding of it that I, my father had, but I have never forgotten it. I can think of no blessings to be more fervently desired than those promised to the pure and the virtuous. Jesus spoke of specific rewards for different virtues, but reserved the greatest, so it seems to me, for the pure in heart. For they, said he, shall see God. And not only shall they see the Lord, but they shall feel at home in his presence. Here is his promise, the Savior's promise. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly, then shall the confidence, thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. The rewards for virtue 
and the consequences of unchastity are dramatically portrayed in the lives of Joseph and David. Joseph, though a slave in Egypt, stood true under pressures of the greatest temptation. As a reward, he received the choicest blessings of all the sons of Jacob. He became the progenitor of the two favored tribes of Israel. Most of us take pride in being numbered among his posterity. David, on the other hand, though highly favored of the Lord, was in, he was in fact referred to as a man after God's own heart, yielded to temptation. His unchastity led to murder, and as a consequence, he lost his families and his exaltation. And now, my brethren, I shall not say more except to renew my plea that we all believe in and live for the promises, worthy of the promises of the Lord. Let us not be like some people were in the days of Malachi. They argued that it was unprofitable and vain to serve God because, as they saw it, the proud were made happy, the wicked set up, and they that tempted God were delivered. Let us have the good sense to realize and remember that today, as well as in the days of Malachi, a book of remembrance is written before the Lord for those that fear him and think upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But, says the Lord, in a glorious promise to the righteous, unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and we, he, sh he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. O oh, my beloved brethren, believe in and live for the promises of the Lord by keeping his commandments. If you will do this, even though you do not ha now have full confidence in these promises, I assure you that that confidence will come. Never be weary of good works. Good works. But be meek and lowly in heart, for such shall find rest to their souls. Oh, remember and learn wisdom in your youth, said Alma. Yea, learn in thy youth to Keep the commandments of God, yea, and cry unto God for all thy support, 
Yea, let all thy doings be unto the Lord, and whithersoever thou goest, let it be in the Lord. Yea, let thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. Yea, let the affections of thy heart be placed upon the Lord forever. Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God. And if you do these things, ye shall be lifted up at the last day, that it may be so with all of you and all of us. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren, I rejoice with you in the wonderful spirit of this priesthood meeting. I'm grateful that my spirit was reserved to come to earth in the dispensation of the fullness of times when the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored and when we have a prophet of God, our beloved president, Spencer W. Kimball, to counsel us. Each of us is entitled to immortality through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in order to enjoy eternal life, we must work out our own salvation day by day. What a marvelous philosophy, the gospel of work, eternal progression. President McKay said, let us realize that the privilege to work is a gift, that the power to work is a blessing, that the love of work is success. For the next few minutes, I would like to direct my remarks, particularly to my young friends of the Aaronic Priesthood. You may not realize it, but when you were young, you set the patterns that follow you throughout your entire life. It is so important that you set good patterns when you are young. I'm grateful that I had a father and mother who taught me as a boy the joy of work and the importance of paying my tithing and of spending less money than I made so that I could have something saved for my schooling and mission. As a young boy, I raised chickens and sold eggs in the neighborhood mowed lawns, worked in a warehouse and brickyard, and later sold printing. By working, I had my own money to spend, and I felt pretty grown up. I paid my tithing, put something in a savings account for a mission in schooling, and the rest was mine to spend in any way I wanted to. My parents taught me that tithing was a commandment of our Father in heaven, and a way for us to show our love for him and our appreciation for all the blessings he gives us. I still have a tithing receipt which was given to me when I was eight years old, and it is among my prized possessions. The younger a boy is when he learns these important lessons, the more they become a part of his life. 
I am sure that many of the blessings I have enjoyed throughout my life have come to me because as a boy I learned the importance of working and being thrifty, paying my tithing, and putting something away for my mission and schooling. When a young man goes on a mission or to school and pays some of the cost, he generally works harder and is happier and more successful. Now let me speak to you older priesthood bearers as well as to the younger brethren. Regardless of the difficulties existing in the world today, we as a people must recognize that we have been greatly blessed with the resources of this world. We, in effect, become stewards over our earthly possessions. Throughout the history of the Church, the doctrine of personal and family preparedness has been emphasized by the leaders of the Church. Six phases of personal and family preparedness have been stressed by our leaders. Education, career development, financial health and spiritual preparedness, and home production and storage. In view of today's moral and social conditions, as well as unstable economic conditions in practically every country in the world, I have felt impressed to speak upon the importance of personal and family financial preparedness. We must recognize that financial problems are the reason for much unhappiness and are certainly a major factor in family difficulties and divorce. The Lord has told us that if we are prepared, we shall not fear. What a blessing it is to be free from financial fear. I would like to suggest a three-point formula to attain and maintain financial preparedness. Number one, pay your tithes and offerings. Number two, get out of debt and stay out of debt. And number three, use your surplus funds wisely. This formula is equally applicable to young and old. Let me discuss each of these three points briefly. First, pay your tithes and offerings. The Lord has said, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. In this dispensation, the Lord has revealed to us that this is a day of sacrifice and a day for the tithing of my people. Brethren, compliance with the law of tithing opens the windows of heaven, bringing material and spiritual blessings. Through sacrifice and obedience, it is truly the first step towards personal and family financial preparedness. As long as one is honest with the Lord, the amount of tithing paid is not material. The widow's or child's might is as important and acceptable as the rich man's offerings. When men, women, and children are honest with the Lord and pay their tithes and offerings, the Lord gives them wisdom 
whereby they can do as much or more with the remainder than they could if they had not been honest with the Lord. They are blessed and prospered in various ways, spiritually, physically, and mentally, as well as materially. I know this to be true, and I am sure that many of you can bear such a testimony. And always remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now the second point of the formula, get out of debt and stay out of debt. In modern revelation, the Lord has given us these commandments. Verily I say unto you concerning your debts, behold, it is my will that you shall pay all your debts. And again, pay the debt thou hast contracted. Release thyself from bondage. President Joseph F. Smith advised the saints to get out of debt and keep out of debt, and then you will be financially as well as spiritually free. In getting out of debt and staying out of debt, there are certain basic principles that we as individuals and families can apply, such as, one, live within your income. Two, prepare and use short and long-term budgets. Three, regularly save a part of your income. Four, use your credit wisely if it is necessary to use it at all. For example, possibly a reasonable debt might be justified for the acquisition of a home or education. And number five, preserve and utilize your assets through appropriate tax and estate planning. I know that by following these simple basic principles, it is possible to get out of debt and stay out of debt. What will this mean to us as individuals and families? President Heber J. Grant said, If there is any one thing that will bring peace and contentment into the human heart and into the family, it is to live within our means. And if there is any one thing that is grinding and discouraging and disheartening, it is to have debts and obligations that one cannot meet. Brethren, I can personally bear witness that this is true. The third part of the form, point of the formula is to use your surplus funds wisely. In many respects, I feel that the real test of a man is his attitude towards his earthly possessions. A person who places earthly possessions of this world in the scales against the things of God evidences little understanding of eternal values. President Brigham Young had this to say about this matter. When this people are prepared to properly use the riches of this world for the building up of the kingdom of God, he is ready and willing to bestow them upon us. I like to see men get rich by their industry, prudence, and economy, and then devote it to the building up of the kingdom of God upon the earth." Unquote. I personally feel very strongly that in furtherance of these teachings, every man who has property and means should so live as to obtain wisdom to know how to use them in the best possible way to promote the welfare of his family, his fellow men, and in building the kingdom of God. I bear you my personal testimony 
that personal and family preparedness is vital to our eternal welfare and happiness. And it is important to be strong financially as well as spiritually, mentally, and physically. Yes, financial strength is realized by keeping God's commandments, by payment of an honest tithe, by developing habits of work, by being thrifty and living within one's income, as well as by using our means wisely. May each of us this night commit ourselves to incorporate these great principles into our lives. Brethren, how glorious it is to know that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, and also to know that the gospel in its fullness has been restored, together with the power to act in the name of God through the instrumentality of the prophet Joseph Smith and that there is a living prophet at the head of the church today, our beloved President Spencer W. Kimball. I pray that we may have the good judgment to follow his counsel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.